sporting news, reviews and previews. This is the Sports Desk. Hello and welcome to the Sports Desk. How great is it to be back in 2024 for our first episode? It's great to have your company on this beautiful Monday evening on Sin. I'm your host, Liam Cole, and we are back for another ripper of a year. Welcome back, Matilda McDermott, Thank on the you. show. Thank you. <laughs> it's great to be back. How was your break? It was nice. Very summery. I enjoyed it. And now just getting back into football pre-season. So very much back into sport. Question without notice. How? What was your sporting highlight of the summer? A sporting highlight? Um, I guess watching the West Indies win against Australia. Mm-hmm. I just finished listening to Triple J's Hottest 100 and I caught the end. And it was great because they all celebrated. I was like, oh, this is quite nice. I'm not disappointed at all. So, Absolutely. That yeah. was a shock and we'll definitely get into that later on the show. But Matilda, we've got some brand new presenters this mm-hmm. year, which is super exciting. And we've got two on our show tonight, Ethan Rigg and Jack Huggett. Welcome, guys. Thanks, mate. It's good to be here. Yeah, I'm really excited to be here. Uh, yeah, I've been eager. Awesome. So there was a massive Super Bowl final this morning, actually, and it was the Chiefs, wasn't it? Chiefs took it. Chiefs in overtime. Patrick Mahomes with a big play at the end again. So overtime, wasn't it? It was 19 all. What can you guys tell us about the game? Well, I think it was Patrick Mahomes that really, you know, was the difference in the game. He was deserving of his MVP. Um, Without him, I don't think the Chiefs would have done it. Yeah. What about half time when Kelsey had a bit of a go at the coach? What was that about? I'm not sure. Sort of, I think it was about him putting his replacement in and then the replacement fumbling or something like that. Was it? Yeah, sort of- I think there was a little bit of a, a debate, to put it uh, nicely, about uh, <laughs> the amount of game time that Kelsey was getting. Yeah. However, Kelsey wasn't really being effective in that first half. He only had, I think, one yard gained at one point, which is pretty shocking for his position. So maybe the coach had something right there. Yeah, Kelsey did have a quiet first half, but he came good at the end in overtime. There was uh, one of the third downs that the Chiefs Mm. needed to make a run on and Mahomes picked him out and he was able to gain the yards that led to the winning touchdown in the end. So is Kelsey a bit of a guy who wants the attention, wants a spotlight? Is that what we're talking about? Obviously, in a relationship with Taylor Swift, Tay-Tay, is that what we're talking about? Um, I'm not sure. I mean, in any game when tensions are high, you sort of throw it all out the window and you're like, well, I want to be out there. This is the Super Bowl. I want to be out there and make a difference. So maybe it was sort of that. I don't think it was more for attention. I think it was just that I guess he was upset that he wasn't getting the game time that he wanted. Let's get to the important stuff, which was the halftime presentation. <laughs> um, performance by Usher. How did we think sure, sure, sure. it was? I mean, when he came out on the roller skates, I was very, very <laughs> impressed. <laughs> yeah, I think the, it started slow, but um, it definitely came around. I think when you know they had uh, get a turn in here, you know, the whole crowd bopping to it. It was um, it was pretty impressive to see. I mean, who doesn't know an Usher song? Exactly. I love yeah. that you brought out Alicia Keys as well. That was incredible. That yeah. was unexpected. That was unexpected. <laughs> yeah. Any more talking points from the Super Bowl? Um, this is the third 
um, Super Bowl for the Chiefs in the past five years, which is a pretty impressive feat. And it's also the first back-to-back since the... Let me see. The nine... Oh, no, not the Niners. The Patriots, sorry. Since uh, the Patriots with um, Tom Brady, I'm pretty sure. Oof. Maybe it was Tom Brady anyway. Yeah. (laughs) Didn't play, but... He retired pretty late. I'd say Patrick Mahomes is maybe starting to get up there with three Super Bowl wins now. And also with that, just really taking the big moments when he gets the chance to. And the play that they ran today to win the game was identical to the play that they ran last year to win the Super Bowl as well. Absolutely. Well done to the Chiefs. Let's move on to some big news and let's go to F1. Lewis Hamilton has signed with (sighs) Ferrari. Matilda. That was shocking news. I think everyone was shocked when that sort of came out because I think everyone thought that Lewis Hamilton was going to retire with Mercedes. He won that many drivers' championships with them that the move to Ferrari, who, you know, it's a little bit at the moment. They're not sort of up there with performance. I think it was a shock to everyone. What do you guys think? Yeah, I honestly expected Lewis to retire at Mercedes. I've never even thought of him going down to Maranello. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it brings a lot of questions, though, for the 2025 grid. Yeah. Where, where's that um, Silly season. going? Where's, <laughs> who's going in that Mercedes seat? I'm, I'm going to predict right now that's going to be Alex Albon. I'm going to go with Carlos Sainz. Who do you think, Yeah, Jack? I think Alex for the Mercedes seat. I yeah. think Carlos is going to go to the Audi team that's coming. Yeah. I think the links with Carlos Sainz Sr., his father, it's just too good to pass up. Yeah, I mean, hopefully we get to see some of the behind the scenes with Mercedes and Lewis Hamilton and sort of why he chose to go for, to Ferrari in the new season six of Drive to Survive. So I'm excited to see that when it comes out on February 23rd. Was he unhappy with, what, the engine, with the team's performance? What do you think was the real reason? I mean, I guess he was unhappy with the car. There was sort of some moments where I think Toto Wolf was like, Lewis, we know it's a bad car. You've got to drive it sort of thing. So, yeah, I think cracks sort of formed them, but they said that they're leaving on a good note. So it's sort of unsure of what, what happened there. So I think he's just like Kelsey. He's a competitor that wants to compete. He wants to win. He's always won. And the last couple of years have been a shock to his system yeah. that he hasn't won. And I think at Ferrari he sees something. Maybe we don't see it. Yeah. We never saw the, uh, the Mercedes dominance coming. Yeah. We all thought he was a... It was silly for going to leaving McLaren. So, mm-hmm. you know, maybe he sees something we don't. And I think he wants to break that record that Michael Schumacher has set as well. Mm. So maybe moving to Ferrari, they'll do that for him. Does someone have to go out of Ferrari then? If Yeah, Carlos signs. So it's sort of unsure where he will go in the end. Yeah, I thought that maybe a straight swap deal between Mercedes and Ferrari signs for Hamilton would have made the most sense in that situation, but it looks like that might not be the case. Mm. Yep. Let's uh, move on to swimming, shall we? We don't talk a lot about swimming on this show, but um, James Magnuson, former Olympian, 32 years of age, has entered a so-called game such called the Enhanced Game. So I didn't know a couple of days ago what that was, but it's basically athletes taking performance-enhancing drugs and and trying to beat, you know, world records. So he's aiming to beat the 50-metre freestyle um, record. And if he does, he does get a big 
pay packet. What are your thoughts about that? I don't know about the enhanced games, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> I... I have read a little bit about it and they've said that they're going to be working with the right people to ensure that the whatever's being taken by the athletes to enhance their performance won't be detrimental to their health in the long term. However, I just don't know how accurate that's going to be. I'm just interested to see how far the human body can go with performance-enhancing drugs. I think that's always been a question. Like, It's sort of been stripped away. Oh, this is what, how far we can get. So I want to see how far we can really push so it. So you like it? You oh, like I think it will be really interesting <laughs> to see. I think it would. Obviously, it's morally wrong. Like, We should be able to do this sort of stuff naturally, but I, I would be interested to see how far we can actually go with performance-enhancing drugs. Yeah, personally, <laughs> I'm hesitant, uh, to say the least, but... I see both points. I think as long as it's completely separate and it doesn't override anything about the Olympic Games, there's a place if it's your body, your choice. There are significant risks, I think is like to yeah. say. Yeah. Um, but as long as it's regulated, I think there's you know a potential to... As a fun every now and again thing. <laughs> retirement games. Yeah, retirement games. <laughs> retirement games. Retirement games. So I, do, yeah. I do actually agree with that point quite a lot. It is your body and it is your choice and you can put into it whatever you would like. However, I think there needs to be a lot done on that mm. medical side to ensure that you are fully aware of what you're taking. You're fully aware of how it will affect you, both in the short term where you compete and in the long term as well. And that's where my major concern for it comes from, that that won't initially be the most accurately reported thing and that long term we'll see these athletes suffer from some pretty severe health effects. So I believe the prize money will be about $1.5 So if he can do it, 50 metres, that's all it takes. 50 metres? 50 metres. So about, what, 10 seconds of work for (laughs) 1.5? One one length of a swimming pool for 1.5 million. You would do that. You would do that. You'd take all the drugs. No, I'm joking. (laughs) (laughs) And (laughs) that's how we wrap out our first break of the sports desk. It's great to be back on your Monday evening. Now it's time for a bit of Usher on the sports desk. Usher. Sports Desk, first episode for 2024. How exciting. And it is time now to talk about some tennis. Yep, and it was Anna Sabalenka who took out the women's singles title, beating Chinese player Chinwen Singh. Definitely butchered that. <laughs> so she won Sabalinka 6-3, 6-2, and she has won the second Grand Slam title. Two of those are at the Australian Open. So she definitely loves playing down under. That's her 14th career title, and she had to beat 19-year-old American Coco Gauff in the semifinal, who is very highly rated these days um, for the future, 7-6, 6-4. So at times, probably semi-finals are probably harder to win than the actual final in some circumstances so um a lot to play out with the women's i thought the biggest upset of the tournament was polish player uh, igar shontek who was the number one seed for the tournament and she lost in the third round to linda noskova so that was the biggest upset for me um any key takeaways from that final series yeah, definitely Iga Swiatek. I think that's how you say it. Um, 
definitely a biggest upset. I watched her play last year and she's absolutely incredible and definitely deserves that number one ranking. I'm not sure if she's number one anymore, actually. Is she? I think she still is. She yeah. still is, yeah. So it'd be interesting to see how this sort of year of tennis plays out for the women's and I'm excited to, to watch some more. Yeah, I think it was a great tournament overall. Um, aside from like the scheduling issues, um, I know they've been talked about a lot, you know, Playing at 3 a.m. in the morning isn't exactly ideal for anyone. <laughs> but uh, otherwise, like, it was a pretty unpredictable tournament with some great games across both men's and, uh, and women's. I thought even the doubles provided a lot of um, great entertainment as well. Let's have a look at the Aussie knockout. So in terms of an Australian point of view, um, wasn't great. So we had Taylor Preston, Kimberly Beryl, Dariel Saville and Olivia Kudecki all losing in the first round. And then we had Isla Tomjanovic who lost in the second round. And then Storm Hunter, what a name. Um, she was her best... Um, she was the best Aussie in terms of progression for the whole tournament, losing in the third round. So we definitely miss someone like Ash Barty. Yes. And, you know, the yes. question is, will Ash Barty ever come back, do you think? Um, I don't know. I think she's sort of moved moved on to different part of her life. And I think tennis is a lot of travelling, a lot of this and that. So I think maybe she'll return i'm not sure but um i hope i hope she does i hope we get to see her a couple more times before she's a bit too young to retire you know what i mean so yeah i feel like every australian has you know a little soft spot for barty they all want to see barty party back yeah we all loved it but i think she has moved on to the next stage of her life yeah yeah i think especially for those first couple of years if she wanted to come back she probably would have announced it by now and if she hasn't, it must be that she's pretty comfortable in the next chapter. She's only 27. She did retire so early at 25. Yeah. She played cricket, so she had a break from tennis, played in the Big Bash, and now she's playing a bit of golf. So she must be – she's so talented. Yes. That's funny. I mean <laughs> – I mean, who can, like, soar that high in three different sports? I mean, it's crazy. The only name I can think of that comes close is Elise Perry. Yeah. Played, played yeah. football at the World Cup for Australia and then is probably, if not the best women's cricketer in the world at the moment. And I think the Carlton AFLW yes. team were She's... sort of looking for her for a bit, which was yeah. interesting. Yeah. Um, but, you know, she probably could do it if she wanted to. But uh, stick to cricket, I reckon. Um, let's move on to the men's. And Italian Yannick Sinner defeated Russian uh, Daniil Medvedev in a five-set match, winning 3-6, 3-6, 6-4, 6-4, 6 coming from behind, winning the last three sets to win his first Grand Slam title, the fourth seed. How do you find that? See, for me, this was my shock of the tournament mm. because you become so... Like when he beat Novak Djokovic, you become so accustomed to seeing one of those names, whether it's Djokovic, Nadal or Federer, in the final of any of the Grand Slam competitions that we've had probably in all of our lifetimes. And to see that not be the case this time round, that was very, very strange for me. It was also very refreshing as well. I think everyone's sort of looking to new players to look up to. And I think Yannick Sinner, um, everyone loves him. I mean... The reception he had here in Australia was incredible and he definitely won it for all us rangers. Um, I saw a lot of people wearing these things like the carrot. I saw a lot of carrots in the crowd. So, yeah, definitely won it for obviously Italy and the rangers as well. <laughs> yeah, I think the the next gen is here, essentially. Yeah. Like we're seeing, you know, 
phasing out of the big three. We don't even have to say their names. We all know who they are. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've got these young guys coming in. We've got yep. Sinner, we've got Alcarez, Sitsipas. Mm-hmm. There's tons. And I, I'm excited to see them. And also I want to touch on like the Australian point of view. Um, Dimonor got you know broken to the top ten first yeah. time in his career this year, That's and incredible. I know he's had some criticism around not making it past the fourth round, but he's going up, and I'm excited to see where he lands. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And it was a similar tale for Medvedev, who lost the 2022 Australian Open final against Nadal after winning the first two sets of that final. So yeah. similar question, story. Yeah, is it is it mental because he can be a bit of a hothead at times, or is it fatigue? Because because he did win a big semi-final in a five-set game against oh, Alexander yeah. Zverev. Yeah, his his game the before was huge and it went for so long. I think he was just tired because during that final, I was sort of watching it and I was secretly, you know, going for Medvedev, okay? Um, <laughs> <laughs> Only and, one. Yeah, and he... His, he, he was very mentally like there. Like he wasn't slipping at all. He was very composed, very calm throughout the whole thing. Um, I think sometimes he can sort of just get a bit upset. You know, we've seen him throw the racket and all that sort of stuff. But yeah, I think this game he was very composed. And also against Yannick Sinner, I mean, I think he was happy for him at the same time. So mm. I think it was a great final to watch. Yep. So talking about upsets, Djokovic losing to Sinner. I mean, that was that was huge in the semi in four sets, and then Alcaraz losing to Zverev. Um, that was probably wasn't an upset, but you'd expect Carlos to win that. Um, and then you got Fritsch, the American, beating Tsitsipas. Um, that was quite a good game as well. Um, any other thoughts on the tournament? I mean, I guess I have a prediction for this year. Um, will we see Nadal retire at all? Yeah. I mean, he's definitely nearing the end. You can tell he's sort of getting tired and, you know, he's a great athlete, but will it be the end this year? I think there is a chance that he makes it to Roland Garros and then bows out with a win at Roland Garros. King of clay. King of clay. Perfect way to end it. Mm. (laughs) Well, he did announce that he was, you know, supposed to play in the Australian Open, but pulled out. Um, yeah, but it's a definitely a very good question. Alex Popperin, at least he you know, won a set against Djokovic. I think that's pretty impressive. Mm-hmm. I think that's a positive he can take out of the tournament, even, the, even though he did get kicked out of the second round. Um, one last question. Do you think Kyrgios will ever play again? Because he looks disinterested right now. Yeah, I don't think he will, to be honest. I think he said he was more interested in sort of the broadcasting side yeah. of tennis. Um, he did he did do that this year. Honestly, and he was pretty good. Yeah, he I was. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so, and he knows the game from the player's perspective, which is great and, you know, sort of need that in broadcasting. So I'm not sure if he will go back. He doesn't seem very interested to, and, you know, he could be an incredible player if he actually stuck to it, but... He doesn't want to, so... I could see him at doubles tournaments and maybe at Wimbledon as well. I feel like he, at Wimbledon in particular, he loves the British crowd. And in a way, they kind of love him too. Because in England, what we love more than anything in sport is somebody like a pantomime villain that you can, (laughs) that you know the the narrative, that you know the narrative is against, but you can't help but want them to do well. Yeah. Awesome chat about the Australian Open, and that will be uh, a lot more coming throughout this year. We got Wimbledon, French Open, US Open in similar time frame. So we'll take a break. Plenty more coming up on the other side, including some cricket on the sports desk. 
Welcome back. You are on the sports desk, and it is time for some cricket chat. So that was Fader by the Temper Trap over there. What a banger, by the way. An absolute banger. Um, so at the start of the summer, so we thought probably Pakistan, West Indies, probably would have been a long summer in terms of boredom, but it just wasn't the case. I thought even though Pakistan did lose a Series 3-0, um, they definitely could have snared at least one game to win, you know, 2-1, but uh, just their fielding just wasn't really good enough, Ethan. Yeah, I think the first over in Perth set the tone for Pakistan's summer. Shaheen Afridi, who was not 100% fit when they came down here, um, his first over went for 14, and they had a couple of drop catches early on in that first session in Perth. And I thought that summed their summer up really well. A lot of nearly moments for Pakistan. They got close in Melbourne with Rizwan. He had a good partnership and they had a real find in Amir Jamal as well who brought Mm. a lot of energy and a lot of excitement to what otherwise was a pretty forgettable tour for them their SCG test I've pretty much summed up their whole series. You got Shaheen Afredi who was rested for a three-match test series and you see him playing in the UAE for the Desert Vipers. I think that's pretty cringeworthy, but um, he was, you know, working really hard, bowling 24-25 overs per innings. That would have been really tough for the body. Yeah, and I think they came in undermanned for that pace attack as well. Nassim Shah being injured is a huge loss for them because he's been a big part of their seam attack and offers a lot lot more pace than a 3D in particular and Harris Ralph who's played test cricket and I think they kind of missed the trick with when they brought in Hassan Ali I thought they should have played him in the first test yeah and not Fahim Ashraf I thought he's um, yeah he, he just bowls throwdowns <laughs> let's be honest um, but yeah it was just that 15 minute you know, lapse in concentration in the middle order for Pakistan where Hazelwood got three wickets in one over. That really summed up their series for me. Um, but, yeah, that seeing Afridi rested, that was really disappointing, Jack. Yeah, well, I think there was, you know, Australia was, you know, pretty good throughout the whole tournament. I think um, it was a good way to send off uh, Warner as well, his yep. farewell test, um, you know, being the only centurion of the series. Um, I know Mitch Marsh also got close. He's my hero of the tournament. Um, most runs. And uh, I think he was pretty unlucky not to get two centuries. Just uh, very close, but no cigar in the end. Yep, that's for sure. And we'll move on to the Windies Test Series. And what a win that was. What a shock at the Gabba. And the so-called fortress was broken again. And it was basically Shimar Joseph who got seven for 68 in that second innings. And he almost had a broken toe from a great Yorker from Mitchell Stark. And I'm not sure what painkillers he took, but, geez, they were pretty strong. (laughs) How good was he? He was unbelievable. He has been across the entire summer from the the teams in Australia, Pakistan. He's been my player of the summer. Came in in Adelaide, showed a great amount of energy, batted well with Kemar Roach at the end. Made 30-odd on test debut, took a 5 for on test debut, and then a match-winning seven-wicket haul at the Gabba for an unbelievable win by the West Indies. And Australia supposedly had a fortress at the Gabba. They got beaten by India a few summers ago, and now the West Indies. (laughs) 
Yep, and he only played five first-class matches. Like, that's crazy. <laughs> His story's incredible. His town in the West Indies yeah. as well is one of the most remote places <laughs> within within uh, like the whole the yeah. whole set of islands. It's apparently it's like an hour-long boat ride along this small river to get to where he grew up, which is unbelievable. Yep, and. You know, two good stories. You had Amar Jamal, who was an Uber driver in Sydney playing drag cricket, and then a couple of years ago, and then you had Joseph, who, as you said, and he was a security guard um, for a couple of years, but pull, put all these chips in into cricket, and look at him now, and he's been recruited to play in the Pakistan Super League and now the IPL. So, hopefully, I'm hoping he sticks to Test cricket, but. You know, you got to be happy for him. I'm hoping so too, because I, from that second test, I like what the West Indies have got going on, actually. I like the the pace options that they've got with both Josephs, Alzari and Shamar, yeah. both bowl very well. And they have that bit of experience with Kemar Roach, and they just bring a good energy to test cricket, the West yeah. Indies. Yeah, their bowling lineup is pretty strong on paper. Their spinning options is still an issue. Um, Sinclair had some good energy, but, um, you know, Moti not not too great but I think Kirk McKenzie showed a bit with the bat as well Hodge Kevin Hodge was pretty good um, any other takeaways from the test series uh, apart from the fact that Pat Cummins is still the best bowler in the world three five wicket hauls in a row in the last test against Pakistan and then against the West Indies as well he was absolutely unbelievable and what about the new opener Steve Smith what'd you make of that I don't know how I feel about Steve Smith as an opening bat. I really? Think, I think Australia's team was really well balanced with Labuschagne 3, Smith at 4, and I feel like they need to look for a genuine opening batsman to come in and play that role. Maybe someone like Cam Bancroft. <laughs> so even the 90 not out didn't impress you? The 90 not out in a losing effort did impress me, but... I feel like they could go with someone who's a bit more natural to that role without affecting the overall balance of the team. Yeah, I'd, in my opinion, I'd probably pick Bancroft as well. I think I don't think Harris is up to the level, even though he's a pretty good player, but playing on a road at the Junction Oval, I don't think that's very good. Um, Matt Renshaw, he's been picked in the squad though, so maybe that shows that maybe he's picked ahead of Bancroft, but we'll see. Um, let's move on to women's cricket, and Ash Gardner won the Belinda Clark medal, whereas um, Mitchell Marsh won the Alan Border medal. So uh, that surprised me a little bit in terms of the Alan Border medal. I thought Travis Head would have probably won, but Mitch Marsh, he's been fantastic all 2023. I thought it would have been Travis Head as well, especially for that World Cup final innings. I thought that had cemented him as the winner of the Alan Border medal for sure. Yep, and the surprising thing is he wasn't even in the top three. So you had Smith and Cummins and then the winner, Mitch Marsh. So that surprised me a little bit, but the Aussie women won the three-match ODI series against South Africa 2-1, and they also played over in India late last year in a standalone test match. They lost, just seemed like they weren't, uh, didn't adjust to the conditions. Um, Very, you know, not used to it. India's a difficult place to go and play cricket very difficult place and it would have been one of the first Australian women's tours to India Mm. as well 
But, yeah, I think the ICC should be giving more test match opportunities. Just the one test match, I think that's pretty low. I very much agree with you on this. I think if the ICC really do want to grow women's cricket in the way that they're setting out to do it, I think offering more women's test matches and having a greater marketing towards women's cricket in those test series is something that they need to seriously invest in. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, they lost the Test Series, but they won the ODI and T20 Series, and it felt like their batting um, is really strong. you got Phoebe Litchfield, bit of a prodigy player, 20 years of age, batting at number five, and then you had Grace Harris at number six, who dominated for the Brisbane Heat and the WBBL at the top of the order. If you got, you know, um, batters like her deep down the order. It's showing that you've got great depth, um, that's for sure. BBL, um, Brisbane Heat, they won their second BBL title and it was really Spencer Johnson that won them the final three for 26. He was outstanding. And they were under the pump against the Sixers. They were one for 16 after their four over power play. But credit to Josh Brown, who was amazing throughout that final series. Didn't panic after the slow start and made a really important century with little cameos with Renshaw and Bryant. Yeah, that was really important. And ended up winning them the game and I thought the Brisbane Heat actually got unlucky last year as well against the Scorchers they, yeah. they had the game there and the difference between this year and last year was exactly what you said that calmness and that composure to understand the situation that you're in but understand especially in the case of being 1 for 16 early on that you've got a lot of time in the game to change that and to turn the tide in your favour Did anyone see Josh Brown's 140 in the semi-final against the Adelaide Strikers? It was unbelievable on the Gold Coast um, They had their qualifier game where they lost against the Sixers at Metricon but it was a much different pitch um, on the same venue and he just won them the game off his own bat and um, they just couldn't get it, obviously, the Strikers um, but yeah, credit to Josh Brown as well. He was probably, even though he wasn't the player of the grand final, he was probably the player of the final series. Oh, definitely. He he probably won the Brisbane Heat the title in the end. Yeah, absolutely. And just more broadly about the tournament, I think pace off the ball was the key. I think you look at Stephen O'Keefe, 40 years of age, Cameron Boyce, leg spinner, sort of flown under the radar a little bit about their pace off the ball. Not very quick through the air. Bowls about 75 Ks, um, but was really hard to get under. I think pace off the ball is the key in T20 cricket, definitely. Because especially in those early overs with the power play, what most bats are looking for is pace on, just to work the ball through the gap, use the speed of the ball and get it to the fence to rack up an early total. But I also thought this summer as well, with the big bash, there seemed to be a much different energy around it this year compared to past years. It seemed to start to pick up a lot more again. Yeah, Small, smaller tournament, so it went from 60 to 45 games. I think that helped. Uh, back a few years ago, it did drag on. It dragged on to mid-Feb, and, you know, when you've got the tournament with not the best players like Cummins and Stark, they're not playing, are they? So to have that size of a tournament and not having them playing, I think the fans can get a little bit bored, um, which is understandable, and then you've got so many meaningless games 
with that longer tournament. So you could definitely tell the crowds were back. Um, Perth, they get around their team. New Year's Eve, that was packed. SCG, so it's really good to see Big Bash back. Yeah, and just with those fewer games as well, it felt like it added a lot more weight mm-hmm. to every single game this summer, which is exactly what you want. It's not necessarily always the quantity of cricket that you get, but it definitely is the quality, and I think the Big Bash is starting to get that right again. Absolutely. Um, any more talking points about the cricket? Let's talk about last night. Did you see that run-out chance? No? No, I didn't. So, basically, the umpire, it was a run-out chance. It was out, but the umpire backed his call and thought it was not out, but they looked at the big screen and it showed clearly it was out. But the umpire, his excuse was, you didn't appeal, so I'm not going to go upstairs. (laughs) So... I just don't like that. The players weren't happy, but, yeah, it, it was just a interesting call, I think. But what can you do? I think with any direct hit in international cricket, you've probably got to go upstairs as an umpire. Yeah, it was um, a bit of an ego there from the umpire, surely. Yeah. Even, even if the players don't necessarily give a huge appeal, I would say it's worth a look unless the player's comfortably in. Yeah. Yep, good chat about cricket, wasn't it? And we'll take a short break. Plenty more coming up, including soccer on the sports desk. Welcome back, and you are on the sports desk. Don't know what happened See, there, got to be honest. Even Taylor can intercept our broadcast, you know. <laughs> she so, does it at the NFL, she does it here on the sports desk. Absolutely. <laughs> really trying to push the air as tall. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, hopefully we can shake it off and talk and about the And she'll be listening, of course. Absolutely. Now it is time to talk about some soccer Premier League, guys. Now, the Premier League, this is probably the closest Premier League title race we have had in a long time. Probably the last 10 years. The top three teams, which are Liverpool, City and Arsenal, all separated by two points at the top of the table. The Gunners with a massive 6-0 win this morning away at West Ham. Who do you think will go the way? City, of course. (laughs) um, Look... They've got, the, they've got the reputation for a reason. They've always managed unbeaten runs after Christmas. They've got De Bruyne back. They've got Haaland back. Can they, how do they lose, is my mind. Uh, it's all up to whether... They've got a game in hand, too. If Liverpool can keep up the momentum with the leaving coach at the end of the year, I don't know. It's going to be tough, but I think it's cities to lose. I think it all hinges on the game at Anfield between Liverpool and City because that's the only way I can see City losing in the run home with their strong record, especially after Christmas through the back end. They just don't seem to know how to lose a game. I don't think Arsenal has the the gunfire or the, the firepower to really take it to those two either. I think they've been shown out in a few moments across the last past year that they don't stand up towards big games, except the exception of Liverpool. I think that was... After a shaky announcement, a few players feeling the, you know, the effects of a leaving coach, but I don't see them. They obviously last year they they had the massive choke, but I don't know we'll see how it 
goes out from here. But I think it's City's still to lose. I also think it's City's still to lose. I also don't think Liverpool and Arsenal strengthened enough in January during the transfer window, which has just closed. One team that did, though, was Tottenham. And they added Timo Werner, who used to play for Chelsea, to the ranks, but also let go Ivan Perisic, who went back to his boyhood club, Hajduk Split, in Croatia, and is playing there for one euro a week, which (laughs) I think is one of the more wholesome stories to come out of this January. Clubs broke, do you reckon? No. What about Aston Villa? They've been the story of the season for me. Um, Unai Emery coach used to manage Arsenal. Didn't go that well, um, but he's been fantastic um, for Aston Villa. They've got some great players. Leon Bailey, I think he's one of the best attackers in the league. Not Maybe not just the league, but the world. Um, Martinez, goalie. I think he's been pretty good coming over from Arsenal. And then you've got Lucas Dina, uh, you know, Wilkins and Tillemans, who have been really good. Ollie Watkins, for me, has been one of Watkins. the players of the season. He's the first player this season in the Premier League to get into 10 goals and 10 assists mm. and has really been the driving force behind Villa's good run, which has kind of faltered a little bit recently. They lost to Manchester United this morning with Rasmus Hoyland scoring his fifth goal in five games, continuing on their good run. But I think with Aston Villa... They've kind of come out of the blue to be the story of this season. Nobody really expected them. A lot of the talk was around Newcastle or West Ham United at the start of the season. And Emery's done a great job with Villa. Watkins has led the line brilliantly and I think they've got a very good balance. I just don't think they're there yet. I think, you know, as you said, they've come out of nowhere, especially after the pretty horrid Steven Gerrard years where they underachieved massively and they went down. Now they're back. Um, Ollie Watkins has been amazing this year. I think he's really improved on what has been his biggest critique, his consistency. Um, I'm excited to see him at Euros this year. Uh, I hope he gets into the England squad and really shows what he can do on an international scale. Um, Yeah. Him getting service from Jude Bellingham is a very, very promising prospect. And he's doing well at Real Madrid. He is, isn't he? Two uh, this morning as they beat Girona 4-0. They're five points clear at the top of the league and they've got a pretty interesting round of 16 tie in the Champions League coming up as well. But whenever they need him, he just seems to step up. What about Liverpool now? Jurgen Klopp is finishing up at Anfield at the end of the season beginning his uh, tenure there at 2015, has a win-loss record of 60.7, so he's been really good. They've finished in three Champions League finals appearances, one Champions League title and one Prem title, so he's been pretty good. I think Liverpool have been amazing under Klopp. I think they've been really unlucky. They've won, They've Multiple times they've gotten high scores that would have won any other Premier League title, but they lost to Manchester City. Um, But ultimately, I think now the big question is, who the hell replaces Klopp? I know there's some names out there. Xabi Alonso, he's doing amazing at Leverkusen. We'll get into them in a second. I hope to God that Steven Gerrard gets nowhere near Liverpool. I think he'd tear that club apart. He's just shown he can't manage at any high level. But I can't think of any other names that are attached to Liverpool job at the moment. I think Alonso is probably the right choice, especially if Leverkusen go on to win the Bundesliga this year. One, he used to play at Liverpool, so he knows he knows the club, and I think the way that he would want them to play 
would suit a lot of the players and would suit a lot of the structure that Klopp has there already. And I think just on him leaving as well, when he took over them, they yeah. were they were a mess. And what he has done is he has left them in a much better way than when he found them and he's been able to create a cycle of sustained success. Well, in their first season, they finished eighth, but credit to the club for not sacking him. Next year, fourth, and then I think it was the title. So that's um, a pretty good effort from the basket case that they were. It really pains me to be nice about Liverpool. So it really does. <laughs> Who do you support? But I'm an Everton fan. Oh, God. <laughs> They're in the relegation zone, aren't they? We are at the moment, yes. <laughs> yes. But I think I've got to give credit to Everton. I think they've been pretty good despite what's been going out side of the club with the um, the penalty that's whether you like it or not it's happened no no it's 10 points which means a lot down there um but Dyche has done a pretty good job I think regardless I have a massive amount of respect for Sean Dyche as, as Everton boss I think b- before this season keeping us up last year he did an incredible job with an incredibly thin squad but I think this season we're probably looking a lot more comfortable he did pretty good at Burnley didn't he for a long time he was excellent at Burnley and has that defensive mindset sort of set with Everton as well or well he seems to I mean Sean Dyche he's known for one thing the 4-4-2 yeah. um, <laughs> the classic classic classic, <laughs> classic 4-4-2 that, we, have, we have evolved from that slightly but um, the defensive solidity has definitely stayed Everton currently have the most clean sheets in the Premier League Alright, that just about wraps us up for the first episode of the Sports Desk in 2024. How good was that? How quickly did that go? Oh, incredible. Even incredible we, we had show. Taylor Swift on, randomly. <laughs> for no reason. I was not mad. <laughs> so, this first season we will just be on Mondays 5 to 6pm. We'll see you next week and then the second season starting April we'll go back to our regular time slots of Monday and Friday 5 to 